0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Barefoot Mediator Podcast, news and views from Jane Gunn and guests. In this episode, I speak with Gillian Bishop, who is a family lawyer with a holistic approach to separation and divorce. She's also the author of a recent paper, Brave Enough to Be It, exploring stress and well-being and supportive workplaces. So, welcome, Gillian. Thank you very much, Jane. It's lovely to have this opportunity to talk. So, Gillian, uh, we've known each other for, for many years, and you are, I think, one of the founding partners of what was called Family, what is called Family Law in Partnership. Aren't you about to celebrate 25 years, is it?
1: Well, in fact, we celebrated 26 years yesterday on the 1st yeah. of September. Wow. So, um, yeah, our 25th birthday celebrations were somewhat curtailed by yes. the pandemic.
0: Yes. But I know from having known you all these years, Gillian, that you had a specific sort of vision for this firm. And one of those was this kind of holistic approach to your work. And in particular, you deal with people who are divorcing or separating and, you know, having to divide families and assets and children. Not that we split them down the middle, but. <laughs> Feels like it sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, so so tell us about that passion, where that passion for this approach to your work comes from.
1: Well, I I think it just starts really with with me being someone who is fascinated by other people. Mm. Uh, And then as I started my career, and back in the day, 40 odd years ago, when I qualified, the realisation that family law work which was what I was most interested in because it involved people that that wasn't really the same as litigation although back then it was treated as such it was just another piece of litigation mm. um and as I kind of got more experienced in it and I realized that I kind of had to be two different people a kind of meat eating rottweiler to be a litigator and somebody much broader much more compassionate, much more empathetic, yes. uh, in the family law work, and I thought, oh, that's that's interesting. It it it's all bunched together, but actually, it's two very different things.
2: Yes,
1: and my qualifying coincided, as it turned out, I didn't know it at the time, with the launch of what's now Resolution and was then the Solicitors Family Law Association. Well, you know. Other people who older and wiser, more experienced than me, had come to that same realization that it was something that had to be separate and should be separate to, to be done properly, and that that part of what people needed to be good at that job was to have training in the kind of the context of the work. Yes, not simply the law. Yes. And in fact, I was sort of realizing that the law played a very small part in what we did maybe 20% at most was law, and the rest was understanding people, understanding how relationships work. And I just became more and more enthusiastic. I got involved in SFLA as it was then. I chaired one of their committees, which was looking particularly at these sort of essential skills training, for want of a better phrase. Uh, And I became more and more interested, more and more passionate, more and more believing that actually, we get taught none of this at law school or university. We certainly didn't back then. I think it's only a little bit more now. But actually, if people came out of law school, kind of knowing how relationships work, knowing that relationships aren't just the relationships between the client and their soon-to-be ex-partner, but the relationship between the lawyer and the client, between the lawyer and the other lawyer, between the lawyer and their colleagues that is all relationship yes they're all relationships that need working on and that need to be you know understood really and if you start there then things like boundaries listening dealing with conflict all those kind of other things kind of pile up on top so I had an idea many many years ago in in um, I'm just trying to think 2005 I think it was to Try and set something up that would provide these trainings, and there was a lot of enthusiasm. But in the in the end, I was just too busy doing the work, Mm. (laughs) too busy doing the client work to be able to devote much time to it. But that's as I've got older, as I've progressed through my career, as the firm has developed, as younger people have come along behind me, and I've stood back from being a director in the firm to being a consultant. I've now got the time to devote to doing what I've been wanting to do forever, really, oh, which so is well, it feels like forever. Yeah, of, of saying you know, here's the training that we that we need and 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 and, and making that available. So yeah. I'm in the process of doing putting that together actually as we speak.
0: Fantastic. Well, maybe we can put a link at the bottom for people who are interested. And then the other thing you're interested in, Gillian, and I think terribly relevant in these times, and, and our conversation today comes out of an article you wrote, which I think was called Brave Enough to Be It. Is that Brave right?
1: Enough to Be It, yeah. Yes,
0: yes, which is about stress and well-being. So tell us about that because that it does relate Specifically to the legal profession, but I think actually to all professionals in these disruptive times we're living in. A hundred percent. I mean, it, I, I aimed it at family lawyers, but
1: I think I say somewhere in the article that it applies equally to all lawyers and and indeed all all people who are working in stressful jobs. Yes. And that is the need to look after ourselves because we can't look after other people unless we look after ourselves first. Mm. And my interest in in this, and in particular in reflective practice or supervision, call it what you will, really started about seven and a half years ago when I, I was uh, contacted by a psychotherapist called Chris Mills down in Bath, and Chris, I'd met Chris at the odd kind of resolution or family law related conference, and mm-hmm. we, where we'd both been doing trainings and we'd, we'd kind of got to know each other and liked each other, and he contacted me. And said, I'm starting to do supervision for family lawyers. Would you like a go? (laughs) And he kind of offered to give me a go. Yes. You know, suck it and see uh, a free uh, session of supervision.
2: Mm.
1: So, I I mean, you know, who doesn't like talking about themselves? So um, I took him up on that offer. uh, And at the end of it, I was like, Where do I sign? How do I get this? Mm. Uh, And so, started my experience of supervision, which I then had monthly. Mm-hmm. And then I said to my colleagues at Family Law and Partnership, Come on, guys, we've all got to have this. This is amazing. This is making a huge difference to my practice. I'm understanding what's happening, I'm learning skills to deal with it better. So, so I said to my colleagues, You know, we should be making this available for everyone in the firm because it's yeah. absolutely invaluable. And now, Seven and a half years later, 90% of the lawyers at FLIP have supervision and yes. are loving it. And particularly, I think, well, actually, I, I don't know if it is particular. The the youngsters, the newly qualified, the so people who have only been doing the job, you know, two or three years, think they've died and gone to heaven because none of their friends have it yes. in other firms. And they're so grateful that the firm takes well-being so seriously and you know, the old guard, the people, you know, as long in the tooth as me are uh, going, why didn't I have this all of my career? You know, I could have been so much better, I could have lasted longer or whatever yeah, it is. It's so much happier. So, it's tel- so much happier, so much less stressful.
0: Yeah. How does the supervision work then, Jillian? Is that someone from within the firm or you do you have an external? No, Chris.
1: Well, we've got now because we've we've grown a lot at, at FLIP in the last seven years, we've now got two supervisors, both of them external. As it happens, both of them from a therapeutic background, Chris does it, Chris Mills, who I mentioned, and we have mm. um, a family therapist called Catherine Roger, who's who's just started with us yes. to, to do it. I think it's essential that it's outside because it, just thinking about it, you can't really be quite as open no, um, if you're talking to somebody who, you know, could be... Deciding your future, whether you get promotion or not, or whether you, you know, are asked to leave or not, you know, or pay rises and all that sort of stuff,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: because some of the because we're talking about relationships, the relationships you may want to bring to supervision may be with people in your firm, and if it's somebody in your firm supervising you, it's much harder to do. Yes, of course, you, wouldn't, you would need somebody outside. So. Outside is is preferred. And I've now got supervision work myself because I've trained as a supervisor
2: mm-hmm.
1: through flip faculty. Uh, and so I now supervise in two uh, other firms. Mm. Um, and that's fantastic. I, I absolutely love doing it. But it stopped, I love doing it largely because I loved having it.
0: Yes. So I can
1: you know i can really understand and um, having been supervised i'm i'm better able to supervise but i mean it goes back to you know where does this come from why do we need it we need it because we're dealing with other people's trauma all the time and we therefore are frontline victims of vicarious trauma where what's going you know awful things that happen to our clients affect us and we're mad if we think otherwise Yes. Um, and as I as I think I said in the in the article, you know, the, the therapists who see often the same clients, they have to have supervision. It's a compulsory part of their ability to continue their job, mm. and then seeing the same clients presenting the same issues.
2: Mm.
1: They understand that they're in the front line in terms of getting vicarious trauma and they know that they need supervision to help them deal with that and help them cope with it. So yes. it's kind of crazy that lawyers, and not just lawyers, you know, I'm thinking, you know, mental health uh, law, uh, nurses, uh, teachers, police, all those people who kind of are dealing with mm. potentially traumatic situations or difficult situations regularly, we should be looking after ourselves. Yes. You know, w- when the oxygen mask, drops from the airplane ceiling you have to put yours on first before you help other people with theirs it's so obvious when you put it like that
2: it should this be is awesome.
1: what we're doing we're putting
0: on our oxygen masks to help our clients breathe brilliant I love that uh, it, and t- one of the things that's been absolutely obvious to me as a mediator working on sort of cases now I'm working from home on zoom if there's a lot of negative energy that's come out of or trauma i've had to deal with i don't get to escape from that i don't get to go away and go home it's sitting here in my office mm-hmm. um and that's something i've been aware of is you know and and that must be so as well for some of your some of your legal colleagues you know now their home is their office how do you escape from some of the negative energy that builds up around dealing with difficult situations during the day I think
1: that's an incredibly important point I've certainly talked to some people who just worked you know in, during the time that they would normally be commuting an hour in the morning an hour in the evening well they've just worked those two hours yes so had even less time yes and I've also Talk to people about how they've kind of come to that realization and have built in a kind of mental commute, if not an actual one, or mm. maybe physically walking around somewhere you know nearby, walking around the block, going to the park, whatever it was that they could do near them so that they would have that break. And certainly the ones who didn't take those sorts of breaks make themselves stop both before you know kind of a break from home to work and vice versa, I think they probably struggled a lot more. I think they were the ones who were really, really struggling, yeah. uh, particularly in the first lockdown when it was harder to go places. Yes. But actually also subsequently, I think they will they will have really found that much, much harder, particularly if they were also trying to homeschool. Oh, my God,
0: what a stress oh, yeah. that added Absolutely. to an already stressful job. That's been the case, hasn't it? My my own daughter had to have, you know, her own daughter at home, not homeschooling, she's nursery age, but, you know, yes, well, looking after her all day when she would otherwise have been in the office or and adding on her office work on top.
1: Yes, uh, or fitting that in in the margins, you know, before yeah. she's woken up, after she's gone to yeah. bed, yeah, you know, in the gaps when she's having a nap or whatever. Exactly. That gives you no time for you at all. Yeah exactly I just just, my hat you know was take I was astonished at the people's ability to adapt and just to do a stressful job you know not just the kind of working with clients but you know all the pressures of time recording and billing targets and all of that stuff oh and by the way here's you know your three children who now need to be helped through their spelling and their
0: reading and their arithmetic and stuff I know I know Uh, I've been amazed you know how people have adapted and one of the things you wrote about in your article which I think is is quite generic really Gillian is thinking about all the different fear factors I mean we've had fear built into our lives around lockdown Mm -hmm. we've had fear about you know a, a a a global situation a pandemic situation but on top of that or underneath that we've got generally this kind of fear, and I think it builds up as well, perhaps when we're not in the office, about, you know, am I keeping up with my work? Am I fulfilling my billing targets? Am I meeting, you know, perhaps deadlines and so on? So we've got fear after fear after fear, built up layers of fear, which, you know, in your article you are saying, really doesn't help us to be productive professionals. And probably, again, transfers to our clients who are already in a state of fear because of their own problems. So exactly. You know, how do we get out of that cycle of fear, you know, generally well I think I
1: think first of all we have to own it. We have to admit that there is that fear. And then we have to do something about it. And that and that is talking about Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And what can we change to alleviate that fear? How can we run our businesses in a way that our younger people aren't frightened of saying I've made a mistake or aren't frightened of um, not hitting their target one month or, yeah. you know, w- whatever it is that we, sh- we need to own it. And, you know, and I think the um, character of a firm is largely dictated by the people at the top.
2: Mm.
1: and if they're fearful then that will cascade down and Mm. everybody will be fearful and they will be fearful of you know the business succeeding of them making enough money to pay their bills and their staff Mm. um, of um you know keeping up with the joneses you know not being behind the the times in terms of innovation um of being seen as you know now now that we've got all these directories which rank you. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, there's all the aim is to get to tier one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and it's a kind of an impossible merry-go-round because it's all a mystery how you are ranked in the first place. Things that you might not do get you higher up the rankings. So for example, you know, reported cases gets you higher up the rankings than not reported cases even though I would say from a client's perspective, not having your case go to court and therefore oh. incapable of being reported is much better for you as the client than it is for the lawyer. Of course, You know, the lawyer gets more money and gets kudos and gets higher up the rankings. But yeah. so the client has had to pay for that Yeah, maybe been left, yes, maybe hopefully with, you know, enough money to live and what have you, but maybe not with a great relationship with the co-parent of their children Mm. Um, and so I think isn't it interesting that um, that that is taken as a kind of a, a mark of success is that your cases have been reported because that's measurable and I remember having this conversation many a time with the people who do the research for these directories who say well we haven't got anything else to measure So we measure reported cases. Mm. That is completely mad. Measure client satisfaction. (laughs) You know, client satisfaction. Clients you say, you know, we didn't have to go anywhere near court. And as a result, me and my ex-partner work really well together as co-parents to our children. Yes. Wow, that's a success. Yes. Yeah, you can't measure that. But I think... But you You can can tell from firms whether what their priority is, whether it's getting good outcomes, good enough outcomes for their clients that they can, you know, live good, comfortable lives on or, you know, fighting to the top, competing with the the other firms, you know, winning things. Mm. That's not about their clients.
0: That's about them. Yes. It's a different mindset, Gillian, isn't it? And and I'm thinking, you know, as you're talking, what you're really talking about is culture as well. You know, what's the culture of the firm and what culture do we create in the legal profession in in firms and and in other professions, actually? And is it a fear-based culture or is it a culture of, you know, what I've been reading about in terms of psychological safety and creating a collaborative culture, which is where each of us takes accountability but we are also supporting each other as we work together so it's not that you don't have the drive and the vision but you're doing it together not fighting against each other which I do see in some organizations
1: yeah and I think I think you know it's both in the work we do litigation is adversarial end of story Mm,
2: mm. so
1: Inevitably, the lawyers become adversarial because they're saying, you know, my client said this or your client said that. My client needs this. Your client can afford that. Very, very positional. Yes. Which makes it harder to negotiate and reach settlement uh, and drives, you know, people into court when perhaps they don't need to be.
2: Mm.
1: And, you know, I think there's a lot of um, tension really for lawyers because, you know, we want to do our best. We want to get the the best result for our client. Um, And at the same time, you know, we need to make money. And I think there's a real conflict there between making money there's no doubt about it. Litigation makes more money than sitting around the table and sorting out in a fortnight,
2: mm.
1: you know. And and there's a tension. It's not necessarily a, um, a a tension that is conscious all of the time. But it'll be there as a subconscious tension, which um, can't help but can't fail but to influence um, the way people. Regard the work that they do. Yes, I mean, I years ago now, but when the collaborative model was first being used in this country, and which was sort of the early two thousands, and I was talking to a friend at one of these drinks parties and saying, um, "Oh, you know, you, you should train. It's a wonderful way. You know, it's much less stressful for the lawyers, etc." And her response was, "Yeah, I'm sure it is, but it doesn't make as much money." And I <laughs> hmm well that's i remember (laughs) who are we doing the work for are we doing it for our clients or for ourselves
0: when 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 mediations started you know and we had the the Hmm. the term adr alternative dispute resolution we joked didn't we that it it stood for alarming drop in revenue for for the lawyers exactly (laughs) and And strangely it hasn't
1: resulted in
0: that no
1: has it and i I don't think that um a more cooperative, collaborative, working together approach will necessarily mean that we, you know, we'll still make a living. We might not make the millions, but we will all be quite comfortably off, I would have thought, um, yeah. where, where we actually work with. I mean, that was the great thing about the collaborative process, which, you know, sadly has dwindled here.
2: Mm.
1: But but the lawyers worked together. Yes. They shared the you know they shared discussions about what the law said and how you could mm. interpret it and
2: mm.
1: how uncertain it was and help couples go well. We want to do this. How will that work? And and then the lawyers could talk together about how that could work. Um. I think what stopped collaborative. From taking off in the way that it could have done over here was fear yes fear of losing clients fear of you know um not being able to although you could not that it was perceived that you couldn't give kind of independent advice to your client mm. fear of getting it of getting it wrong um, fear of actually being in the same room as three other people or at least three other people and having to be yourself and authentically you and vulnerable in the room. Yes. So I think those things are all kind of militated against collaborative getting a real hold in this country and much to the detriment of um, divorcing families in my view.
0: However, Gillian, you you now have the uh, baton in your hand once more and you're you're out to, uh, you know, to be a thought leader, to be a change, uh, you know, to make a change in the world in terms of legal firms. But perhaps it will escalate out into professions generally.
1: Well, I think that. Um, I hope it does. I I think that this pandemic and the lockdowns we've had Mm. has opened up a huge gap. And my favourite analogy for this gap at the moment is the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, And I see us you know professionals if you like as the israelites (laughs) escaping through the red sea to dry land on the other side to safety to you know the land of milk and honey Mm. Uh, and we're in the middle of the sea and we're walking through it Uh, and we've got this opportunity that we've never really had before and please god we never will have again a similar pandemic which stops us in our tracks in quite the same way
2: Mm.
1: but all all the while as we're kind of walking through this gap are these towering walls of water which will come crashing down on us at any moment
2: Mm. and
1: my my fear if I have a fear now it is that we will not take advantage of this moment that we will all slip back into our old ways and yeah. the water will come crashing down and return to the way it was and we'll return to the way we were yeah. and we'll have talked about it, we'll have wrung our hands, we'll have said we need to change things, isn't this dreadful? And we'll have done nothing. Mm-hmm. So I have to just keep marching on really because um that would be awful if that happened because I think people will go, oh well, you know, it didn't happen it's too late now. Yeah. And it's not too late now. It's a bit like climate change. If we act now, we yes. can do something. If we just dither and wring our hands, you know, it's calamitous. Well, let's see the it, moment David. to see. And
0: um I think, you know, anybody listening to this podcast can be inspired by you, by inspired by your message, by inspired by this collaborative vision. And we could all come together and make this happen so um we'll look to you to see what's happening next (laughs) well don't i
1: don't well that's part of my fear is that everybody looks to me actually we need to look to ourselves
2: we do need need to
1: to have conversations with our colleagues we need to say what have we learned what can we do what can we change what 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 do we want to be different Yeah, it's kind of it's an opportunity to start with a blank page yeah we're we're um in a situation where the the legal system is absolutely crumbling if it hasn't already crumbled. So how can we do things differently? How can we work better together for families? How can we make sure that in helping dysfunctional families that our own families, in other words, our firms, our barristers' chambers, aren't themselves dysfunctional? What can we do to ensure that we've got our oxygen masks on first that we can, with a clear head and, you know, fresh air, genuinely help uh, our clients come through probably the worst thing that will have happened to them in their lives up until that moment. You know, so, yes, I'm very keen to kind of stand on a mountaintop and proclaim, but I can't do this on my own. You can't. Every, Every single one of us, every individual lawyer has to say, what do I want to be different? How can I change this? How can I improve this? Yes. How can I take the stress and the fear out of the job? Yes. So listen to me by all means. Read my article by all means, but don't yes. leave it to me because I can't no. do very much on my yeah. own.
0: I agree. And and the theme of this podcast series has very much been, it's up to us, you know, what comes out of each of my interviews is up to each of us as individuals to stand up and you know, and take the accountability for some of the things that need to change. We are, we seem to be at a time where we keep looking for the leaders. We keep saying, where are they? The political leaders seem to be failing us. The corporate leaders don't seem to, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the celebrities don't seem to champion our cause. In the end, it's up to us as individuals to say, what is the world we want to see, whether it's the world of work or, or the world generally, and how are we going to create it together?
1: Yeah, and, and it is about together. You know, yeah. um, Mrs Thatcher said all those years ago, there's no such thing as society. How wrong she was, there is. But yeah. we're unfortunately living now with the consequences of that remark, both, you know, nationally and internationally, But within our little tribe of lawyers or family lawyers or whatever your tribe is, let's talk, let's do what we can, but we have to do it together. We have to talk. We have to put our heart and soul into it. and We have to be the change we want to see. I know it's a cliche, but, oh, my
0: goodness, if none of us did, nothing would ever change. So true, so true, Gillian. So just to wrap up, um, I know you've been inspired by, and I have, Amanda Gorman and her, um, her speech at the inauguration, um, The Hill We Climb, Amanda Gorman, there's a couple of things that come out of that that I know inspire you in this journey. So just finish off by telling us what they are. Yes, well, I think it was, um,
1: she was talking really um, metaphorically about the struggles that America had faced in the last few years before um, Joe Biden was elected.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, she was basically saying, you know, we can't do nothing because if we do nothing, then our, our burdens, our, our blunders become the burdens of the next generation. And we've already seen through the resolution survey on well-being that was released this May that the number of young lawyers wanting to leave the profession mm-hmm. So we can't allow our inertia and our inactivity to influence what will happen for the next generation. Um, And she just ended with this lovely hopeful um, few lines. um, The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light, if only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Gillian. That fills me, you know, I feel chills running
0: down my spine reading that. We have to be brave enough to be it. Gillian, thank you. I mean, let's end on that note. Thank you very much. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you and your work? I know you don't want to be (laughs) overwhelmed with people saying, you know, how do we do it? But I think, you know, where can we find, you know, what you're writing, how you're um, bringing this topic to light? Um, Well, I'm constantly on LinkedIn, so you can
1: find me there. My office email address is GB, which are my initials, GB at Flip, my firm's initials f freddy dot uk. so that's gb at flip.co.uk i'd also invite people to look at the flip faculty website which is uh, flipfaculty.org and also the association of family law supervisors website which is a group of people who've trained to be supervisors to family lawyers mm. and that is familylawsupervisors.co.uk and there you can see I think there's about 15 or 16 people who are ready willing and able trained to be listeners and reflectors uh, and supervisors so there's lots of really interesting and good material on that website so any of those places Oh, on Twitter, what am I, at
0: Gillian Flip, I think I am on Twitter. At Gillian Flip on Twitter. Yeah. Excellent, Gillian. Well, I've followed you for a while. I shall keep following you and uh, we'll keep talking. And, you know, let's reconnect soon and see what change is happening. That would be really nice. That would be fantastic. Thank Thank you, Jane. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. Please do subscribe to the Barefoot Mediator podcast series. And if you would like to access my free video series for managing in times of change, challenge and crisis, and download a PDF copy of my book, How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom, please go to janegun.co.uk slash video. The link
2: is in the show notes.